Welcome to episode 58 of Reading Between the Reels. I'm Craig Dickinson. Thank you so much for joining us today. And if you're a new listener, we're so glad you found us. If you've been enjoying the show, please tell someone about us. Send a tweet, post to Facebook, write a review in your favorite podcast catcher, or just recommend the show to a friend. Today on the show, I'm joined once again by Corey Heitschmidt. What's up, Corey? Hello. And uh, today we are talking about Knives Out from 2019. Written and directed by Ryan Johnson. So, Corey, let's talk about Knives Out. What are your uh, some of your overall thoughts on Knives Out? Craig, I think this movie is fantastic. After the second watch, um, the first mo- the first time I watched this movie, I thought it was a great movie. Liked it, enjoyed it. Getting ready for this show, I was like, okay, yeah, this will be a great one. I'll, I'll enjoy watching this one one more time. And then uh, watching this movie, I got to tell you, I think. This is, there's so much in here. There is absolutely an incredible story. It's a modern who did it story, murder mystery, but it's got humor and incredible levels of details and uh, too much to keep track of. I'm going to say that too much details to even keep track of, which is, which is what makes it a good rewatch, right? If you can see a movie and think this is going to be a good rewatch so I can pick up more then you know you're doing a good job. And so, and it's got a great little plot and plot twists and setups and who's involved. And so I think, I think this is a, this is definitely a deep movie, um, a deep movie, a dark clue type who did it movie, but the humor and the details just keep you, keep you interested and entertained. Yeah. I'd have to echo a lot of that. I mean, you know, full disclosure, this is a movie that, Matt Leader loves co-creator of reading between the reels loves this movie. And so we're going to do this movie because the, the new one's coming out glass onion, um, will be out by the time this episode drops. Uh, and I, I've only seen the movie once before I did this and was just kind of like, yeah, it's kind of interesting. I see what they're doing, but this time through, I was like, oh my gosh, I love this movie. I need to buy this movie because it works so well on, on repeated viewings. Like you, like you mentioned. It does such a good job of just showing and not telling, uh, which is which is fascinating, especially when you're trying to keep track of all the cinematic elements. But I had such a hard time doing that because I was also trying to track the plot at the same time. And uh, you know, usually I watch movies in chunks just so I can spend a little bit more time doing analysis. But I couldn't turn this one off, and uh, it took me at least another hour to watch because I kept pausing and having to write things down as it was going because I was so engrossed in trying to keep track of everything that was happening. So, uh, I'm definitely a fan. I'm, I'm excited about the new one. You know, it's interesting. You said pausing it and then writing things down because I thought the, the part where I said too much details is what I was experiencing. I think, you know, we all, we always have some things that we're going to talk about on the show that we know, and we start to write those down. But with this, show, I started to look and say all the things, like there's too many things to work. The camera, the music, the sounds, the details in the back, the slow fades, the just a slight tinge of music, you know, to set the stage. I mean, it really is an incredible uh, level of detail that Ryan Johnson put together in this. And so I think with that, you have to go in here knowing you're going to miss a few details in it and you're going to focus on the characters and the plot and uh, I think that's what's going to make it great. Yeah. So let's uh, let's start talking about some of those things uh, with cinematography, composition, color, camera work. You want to go ahead and start us off what you noticed for for those things. So I, I'm going to say in the beginning, the, the camera work, there's a lot of uh, setup with the knives, the big circle of knives that they have inside the, the house. And whenever they're doing the interviews, and the interrogations in the beginning, setting up the people, the camera always has them off to the side and shows this circle of knives. And the thing about that circle of knives is it ends up being part of the show later on. Spoiler alert, we're probably going to talk about that later. But as it, it as they set it up in the beginning, they're going to come back to it in the end. And that knives shots with the cameras are just great. All the people, the family members, the thrombies are off to the side. But then Marta, when she gets interviewed, she's in the dead center of the knives. And so I think 
just small things like that that get the viewer to kind of look and and think this is behind you this is this is something important so i think they do some of that um i think the scene and the the way they pan for a couple of the scenes they do some close-ups and then they show back to set up this cold reclusive mansion looking thing you know that looks like a mansion that had been in a generations of family and never been updated it's real 1920s looking um you know almost a almost a sherlock holmes type looking mansion timeline so i think with that camera work they do that they do so great about going in on the character and then also showing an entire scene panning back and you your eyes naturally go to everything in the room knives swords you know uh skulls over here like skull and uh and some of the artwork and things like that all setting up small subliminal things of what's taking place in the scene. So I think the camera work is great. Yeah, there, there's so much with this uh, that I was having a hard time keeping track of. Like like I mentioned, it's, you know, it starts with this really striking shot of the house from this low angle when it makes it look foreboding, like you know something bad's going to happen there. And then you're immediately you have this extreme close up of the coffee cup, which, you know, we'll talk about in props as well. But now's a good time as any, you know, the my house, my rules, my coffee cup. You see that right away. So, you know, there's something important with that. And, you know, I always look for look for geometry. There is triangles in this one. There's a great one in the in the interview section where you have uh, Benoit Blanc at the apex. He's in the very background, kind of out of focus, essentially. And, and it's funny because he's there the whole time, but until he actually says something, it's really easy to miss him. Well, and they allude to him with the piano. He yep. keeps hitting the piano keys and it takes the third <laughs> interview before someone goes, excuse me, who are you? And points him out. And so I think that's a, that's a great little introduction to him. Yeah. And what's interesting is when they do that opening shot of the, of the, I guess that's the library. Uh, it's really slow and it's really wide angle and you can actually see him if you're looking carefully on the far right you can see at least his legs a little bit so you know he's been there the whole time and I had to go back I'm like was he there I don't see him enter but yeah he's he was there the whole time uh in an interesting shot because that the detective is interviewing and Daniel Craig's in the background blurred out like that mm -hmm. is that you also get a kind of a, a opposite shot when Harlan looks over at the knife that he's eventually going to slit his own throat with. That's all blurred as he looks over towards it. So here's Harlan. He's talking with Marta and they're playing their game and he's explaining things and he looks over at the knife and it, as it comes into the camera view, you know, this is going to be part of the story and he grabs it and takes it out and looks at it. Right. But at the whole beginning, it's blurred in the foreground, right in front of the viewer to set its stage. And nice. uh, I think, I think it's kind of a nice contrast to that. Yeah, and, and speaking of contrast, I, I also love that there's differing takes of Harlan getting his cake during the interviews. They're like, well, this is what we did. And then hey, the first time you see, you know, Richard and Linda on, on either side of him, again, triangle. And then when Walt's telling the story, it's Walt and Donna on opposite sides. And you know, neither one of the, like one of those is not true, but that whole, you know, that whole interview sequence, you're like, you're getting seeds of truth, different point of views. And you're really getting to see who these characters are just by what they say. Yeah. You know, that whole beginning scene with the, the interviews sets up the beginning of the movie really well. Because I think I noticed was it put the name of the character on there. And the interview, at first, you're, you're kind of hearing them go from one to another. But then some of the conversations start jumping with some of the flashbacks. So he starts, it's almost as if they're all having the same conversation. And he's saying the same questions to each person, which he is in an interview. But it starts flashing between the characters as you get further into that interrogation part. And so I think they do a great job of kind of summarizing, setting up the story for the viewer without making it seem too unnatural. Like uh, this is very out of place, you know, like here, let us summarize what's going on. Let's set the stage for what's going on and bring the viewer in as if they're part of the detective team. Exactly. So it rewards you for paying attention, which I always love when movies and TV shows do that. And so you get things like, you know, speaking of color, real quickly, there's kind of a muted color palette when it's in the flashbacks. So you can immediately tell, you know, whether we're in the interview, which is happening essentially in real time, 
uh, for the story and then when it's when it's backing. So you can kind of, oh, okay, this is this is earlier. This is what they're talking about. And then I notice things that are different in everybody's story while there, there's a voiceover for that. Yeah. And it, it recalled to mind me of uh, when we did our Lego Batman pod- podcast, which is worth checking out as well, is uh, remember when Joker was on the plane and he made a comment to the to the pilots about setting up the movie? Mm-hmm. I can't even remember what it was called, but it was it was an actual thing where they set up the movie. They set everything up without without having to, ex- you know, with explaining it, but not explaining it. So exactly. Uh, I did want to talk about a few more things with color too. I mean, the house is essentially blood red, which is a really interesting like this is where the murder is going to take place. And then the restaurant that Ransom takes Marta to. I don't know if you notice this, but it's like almost like a sickly green color. And I'm assuming that's not, they didn't paint it for the, you know, because they filmed a lot of these things on location. Uh, they just found a restaurant that looked like that. And so it's kind of the sickly green and like in some Disney movies, that's like green means evil too. It could be jealousy. It could be a lot of things. I mean, that fits with Ransom's profile. So it's kind of a interesting, very bright and distinctive color. I didn't notice that. I didn't notice that. I did notice the color in the, in the hallway when, uh, Michael Shannon is confronting Marta about the inheritance and uh, that little intimidation scene he gives her is uh, the color in the hallway is kind of dark. The camera's tilted slightly just to throw the viewer off balance a little. And uh, I think between just kind of the shadowy, the music, him tapping his cane, all of that fit together. So it's, you know, the color and, and the hallway and everything. Nice. Uh, well, as far as camera work, I had tons of stuff for camera work. There's so many interesting things happening uh, with this one. I n- noticed at the beginning, there's just several quick shots of Harlan's books, like kind of let us know who he is, like that he's an author. You get that filled in uh, really quickly. Uh, I mentioned the slow zoom into the library already, which is which is great. You get that extreme close up of of uh, Benoit Blanc playing the piano key. You just see his finger. And then you have a couple of, I thought, really interesting low angles. There's one where... Um, for kind of the first time that he's talking, there's a he's sitting in a chair and yet it's at a low angle. The camera's basically on the floor looking up at him so that he has prestige and like he owns the room even though he's sitting down, which I thought was fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's you can kind of parallel that with when Marta uh, shows up at the house uh, after after Harlan um, has been killed. The, she comes in and she's talking to uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's character and it's the camera's at a low angle kind of looking up at her like it's it's straight at at Linda when she opens the door but then as soon as Marta walks through the door it switches to a low angle so it's kind of again kind of looking up at Marta so she has this level of respect that we're supposed to give her um one more camera thing that I that stands out to me was right after the will reading and the chaos that ensues as Marta's trying to leave to get out to her car is that was the first time that I noticed um, the cameraman must have been on a shoulder mounted camera at that point because the camera had a slight jerky motion, you know, mm-hmm. as you're walking yep. and it coupled together with everything they did. They had the sound, they had the pian- the music in the background was, was chaotic. Everybody's screaming lines at the same time. And so there's this chaos and the camera's panning around her as she's trying to get in, into the car to disorient you. And then the camera is on a, must have been a shoulder mounted cameraman so that it just creates a little more chaos into the scene as your eyes are like, wait, I'm trying to focus on her and through everything else. And so I think it's a, it's a great way to, like you say, to, to kind of bring in the camera work to help set the scene even better. Yeah, it's a great catch. I I had that one as well. So I'm glad you you brought that up. Uh, A couple other things I wanted to pull out. There's some great extreme close-ups. You have one on on Marta's shoe with the blood drop, which we find out later that Blanc did see. Uh, and then you have the close-ups on the meds, the morphine and, and the Keterlac, uh, which is great foreshadowing. You see that before she injects him. And then you also see it later uh, when you kind of get the reveal. And then you have this really cool um, camera move where camera turns like 90 degrees when, when Ransom attacks Marta and they fall to the floor and the camera follows them so that they still look like they're vertical, even though they're both lying prone on the floor. I thought that was really fascinating. Uh, anything else for cinematography before we move down to sound? Uh, 
I'm going to say the very beginning opening shot, Craig. The the slow motion of the two dogs running with the mansion in the background. And there's a fog. It's a cloudy night. And there's a fog moving. And it's all slow motion. Mm-hmm. And uh, it kind of looks, you look at it and you think that's a scary looking house. You know, that's a, this is a reclusive place, you know, and it's a mansion and it, it sets the whole stage. So that, that camera work in that beginning and the coloring with it, um, it kind of sets the, you know, the traditional uh, detective story. It was a dark and stormy night kind of set up. Sure. Yeah. That's a great catch. Yeah. Uh, as far as sound goes to move down there. I mean, we can't move too far beyond the creaking of the stairs to Harlan's attic because that's such a crucial sound effect that you know everybody's story is tied to that as far as timing goes. Yes, I think the the sound in this whole movie is is incredible. The very beginning it disoriented me at the beginning because there was as the the movie company logos are playing, there's a static sound. Which I, at first I was thinking one of two things. It's either static or it's an ocean, right? And you hear the couple dogs barking. And it threw me off like, oh, are we by the ocean? You know, as you start to watch it. And then the moment, the moment the can- the the mansion appears, you get a loud jump scare from music hmm. to kind of make you, you jerk awake a little bit. Like, oh my gosh, like it jumped right out you and it's slow motion. And as the dogs are running by, they're coming in slow motion. But then immediately the music and changes into a hurried violin pace. And here's Marta, you know, getting her tea and everything ready and then running through the, with the platter up through the long house, going up through the stairs, going through the study, going through all these things. And the music of the violin behind in the background sets that up. It sets it up to, it's a hurried pace. It's feeling quickly. She's, rushing through this long house. So uh, I think it, I think it's pretty, pretty amazing to do all those sounds and set those up and without any conversation in the very beginning. Nice. Yeah. The last sound effect I wanted to talk about was just kind of the muffled voices thing, especially in the argument between uh, Ransom and his grandpa Harlan. So you can kind of piece together sort of what they're seeing. You can at least tell the, uh, the tone of the argument, uh, even if you can't tell exactly what's happening. There's great sound design just to kind of pull us in. And like you, you're, you're straining to kind of hear what they're saying because you know it's important. And later on, of course, we get, we get to hear what they're saying. Uh, but as far as music goes, what I found fascinating is that it's Ryan Johnson's cousin, Nathan Johnson, who's actually written music for most of his films, which is fascinating. Like normally you'd think, well, that's nepotism, but the guy's great. And I love the soundtrack for this kind of this jaunty, playful strings. There's a lot of like high strings, which you got kind of takes you back to like you meant, you can mention that like the Sherlock Holmes thing. And it actually has that feel of, you know, like 19th century London, which is fun. It does feel that way. It does feel like a older movie. Like you could, you could put this movie in a couple different decades and it fits well. Yeah. It's kind of this noir sounding orchestral music. Um, I did also want to mention that uh, there's some great diegetic music in this, in this film, which is, is kind of buried in the mix. But if you're paying attention, it's, I think it's hitting us subconsciously, which all grid music is doing a couple ones. I wanted to pull out uh, the, the song that's playing throughout most of the conversation with uh, ransom and Marta, when he's trying to convince her what to do uh, is a song called sundown by Gordon Lightfoot. And the song is all about not trusting someone. It's like Gordon Lightfoot writing about like a girlfriend he can't trust anymore, uh, which is interesting because we're, we're not supposed to tra- trust Ransom. Like it's it's telling us right there. Uh, and then that last song that's played, Sweet Virginia by the Rolling Stones, it's playing. And you you hear one phrase repeated, repeat, uh, repeated throughout. And it's got to scrape that shit right off your shoes, which is pretty ironic. Well, that's not ironic. It's actually on the nose that this is essentially what Marta's doing. She's like just getting rid of all of the, all the thrombies at this point, because they're all scumbags. Um, what about, uh, what about you? Do you anything for, for music or do you want to talk about some vocal sounds? Cause I think there's some really good vocal sounds in this one as well. Uh, the music, the music is good because I think 
they they don't really set it up with too much as far as uh, soundtrack songs. It's this great score, a musical score with with violins and I think, uh, but it definitely has a way to set the scene of a murder story. You know, a hurried pace for some chaos in the show, kind of a little slow background. You know, for something where they're sneaking around. I mean, it's it does a great job of being in the background but not distracting and then pulling you in. It's a it's it's a it's a good soundtrack that they do, and with all the sound and the music and everything, they fit together. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I love some of the voiceover in this in this film. Speaking of vocal sounds, though, um, you have Harlan explaining to Marta how to how to get away with accidentally killing him, and then they're showing what she's doing the whole time, all the way through. And I love that she's kind of talking back to the to the voiceover a couple of times, which just kind of brings you in. She's like, "Really, you want me to do this?" He's like, "No." turn here uh, those kind of things and then at the end you have Blanc's um, recitation of how Ransom committed the crime while we see it unfold I just that's just brings it all together so quickly like he could just tell us and again it's it's kind of like you mentioned with the Joker and Lego Batman right if you just tell me the whole plot like I'm, I'm tuning out but if you're showing me and tying those things together and the music's building too uh, it just makes it fully engaging that way yeah uh, anything else for sound before we talk about performances? Oh, I'm good for that. All right. Let's talk about performances. Uh, you mentioned, um, we've talked, both talked about it actually, that the, how the interviews are really kind of showing us characterization. Uh, it bring, It's really interesting because it brings in exposition, catches us all up and what's happened to this point, who everybody is. Uh, and, but you get these differing takes on everybody on, on the events and, and on each other too, which is just, it's really good use of dialogues doing so many different things. The, the performance of acting is, is absolutely incredible. You look at, you look at how they make this movie. It's a bunch of rich, spoiled family that, that are just squabbling to get their inheritance. And throughout the whole movie, they set them on, they kind of have this downward talk and how they talk to Marta. Everything they say, you know, she's, she's, oh, hey there, kiddo. You know, uh, you're part of the family, you yeah. know, all these things. But then the moment, the moment anything affects them, they have an impatience in them and they jump straight to the question. So what are you going to do with the inheritance? You know, and, and so they, the whole, the, I'm trying to, trying to explain here is the moment something affects them, they cannot wait. They have to know the answer right away. So as they're all in there, they're going to hear the will reading in just minutes. And Chris Evans walks in and immediately they're at each other's throats and they're, they're immediately wanting to, to allude to what's going on. What's going to be said? Well, what's got, what did he say? What's going to happen? So they don't want any surprises when they get in there. And then when in the hallway, when Michael Shannon's confronting her, his second question to her is, so what are you going to do with the inheritance? And then the phone call from Meg is, you know, I don't know. You just have to do what's right. And I think you should do what's right. I think you should give it back. Like everything is impatient. Yep. And the moment Meg hangs. And so then Marta says, uh, okay, I'm going to, you know, thank you. I'm going to take care of you, Meg. Meg cuts her off and hangs up. Yep. Because she got to hear what it is that she wanted. So immediately she hangs up like, okay, thank you. Fun. And then gone. And then you look and the whole family's right there all just waiting for Meg on the other end of the line. You know, as soon as she hangs up, they're all in their room together. And so there's just this impatience in the performance of what they do to get those characters really show them as that elite group that is selfish and self-centered. Yeah, there, there's a there's a couple specific quotes I want to get to, but but first off, I want to kind of build on what you said, but how they how they kind of treat her like a kid type of thing, uh, and and like she's totally naive and, and an idiot. You know, they there's both Linda and Walt tell her that they they wanted her at the funeral, but they got outvoted. And it's like, well, the numbers don't work out at this point. Yeah, you know, the first time it kind of makes sense, and then no, it doesn't make sense anymore. Like you're both lying. Uh, and then none, I love the fact that none of the thrombies know where she's from. Like she's from Paraguay. She's from Ecuador. She's from, like you mentioned like four different places. Like you don't even know. You don't. Know I think they see Brazilian is. nurse at one point too. Yeah. <laughs> it All just three. keeps changing. None of them know. Um, 
But the first quote I wanted to pull out, and then I'll, I'll let you go, is um, Joni Thromby, uh, played by Tony Collette. She's so great in this. She says, wait, I read a tweet about a New York article about you, which is when she's talking to Blanc. She's like, she didn't even read the article. You find out later Linda did, which, you know, again, characterization, find it really quickly with just that one line. I read a tweet about a New York article about you. Like, read the article. Nope. No. Because no. but but that makes sense though. Yeah. Think about this, because then that family at the big political f- fun discussion they're having where they're I mean, it's heated. And they're <laughs> just going off and there's left and right and everything in this arg- argument. And it's a bunch of people who don't read the articles, they just read headlines, and then that's how they they get together and they start debating each other on all these different issues. It's quite a quite a spirited thing. But it sets up that whole mentality of of, and I, I would say even our society that we don't necessarily read the articles. Sometimes we just read the headlines mm-hmm. and then we use that when we go have our educated discussions about things. So yeah, it's a good setup. You did air quotes there. Just so you're, you're I, quote did unquote, air quote. I air quote, quoted that. Quote unquote that? educated. Yeah. It's not a video podcast, but we need to start the it. YouTube channel. <laughs> uh, any other like quotes that you want to pull out? I had, I had just a couple mainly Blanc ones. I, I've got a couple good ones. Um, the one, and, it, and I think this is a great, like, I always love Easter eggs, Craig. I love Easter eggs. I love, you know, tipping the hat, homage, you know, a little paying homage to a, another show or something that sets up the characters. And one of them, the guy, the detective says, look around. The guy practically lived in a clue board. Yep. And I thought it was great because you immediately go to Clue. Mm-hmm. And uh, that movie, which is by and far my favorite mystery whodunit show ever. And so I would put Knives Out as number two for me because of that. So And so to get the little tip of the hat to Clue, I think is great. So. Yeah, that's a fun one. I had that one too. And then uh, here's here's the other quote, Craig. When Marta and Ransom are talking in the, the diner and he's explaining and Ransom says, how did you get this money? What, what is this about? And he, she says, um, how about, or she says that what if this has more to do with all of you than it does with me? Cause he's asking, how did you get this? How did this work? What, what is it about you that got this? And she's like, it's not about me. It's about all of you. Yeah. And I think that sets a great little premise for the movie because here, and she is this timid kind of beaten down character throughout the whole movie the, of a family that says they're family with her, but they're not. And then um, she starts to kind of gain her confidence later as she goes. So I think it is all about them. Yeah, that, that's that's a really interesting take. Yeah, exactly. It's a hit. Harlan's not picking her as much as he's not picking them. Yeah. Which is interesting. Uh, the last quote I'm going to leave uh, with is Marta says to Blanc, she says, you're not much of a detective, are you? And he says, well, to be fair, you make a pretty lousy murderer. Because he's that's he, that's the he, next quote I had there because it's great. He, he they knew, deserve each other. Yeah, he he knew that she didn't do it. He he had, he knew there was something else, but you know he had as he said also says you know it's a weird case, case with a hole in the center, a donut, a donut within a donut, a hole within a donut hole. <laughs> yeah, and that you know what you could summarize the whole movie because in the beginning you realize they solved the murder. They in the explain when Marta explains what really happened, right? And we get this little summary, and we know he slit his own throat. So it's a suicide. Mm-hmm. It really is a suicide. It was just yeah. a, she mixed up the things, and you know this whole thing they worked out. So you've solved the case, but there's more to it. Like that's the donut, right? And then the 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 hole within the donut hole is the rest of the movie. Two thirds of the movie has to come forward, and there's got to be more here than just what happened with her and Harlan. And so, you know, all these people are going to be involved somehow. And so I think it's, it's kind of a great way to, that summarizes, that's, that's the point. It's a, yep, we'll solve them. We'll solve how he died early, but then we got to kind of get you in there. And so I think it's a great way to, to set a story within the story. Yeah. And you know, that's the thing that threw me off the first time I watched the film was like, I wanted to know who killed Harlan. And then they tell you like he killed himself. They show you that. Right. And then you from there, it's real. That's not the mystery. The mystery is like, how did all these people connive to make it look like Marta's not 
you know, and how, what revealing characterization of all these people. And then you get all the stuff that Ransom does. And that's the stuff I need to see multiple times. I need to watch it again because I want to see how badly, you know, he, he tried to, to, to take down Marta. Um, what about, uh, what about body language and facial expressions I had a, or, or costumes, hair and makeup? I had a handful of things, but I want to give you a chance to, uh, I think Chris Evans, Chris Evans expressions throughout this whole movie. <laughs> yep. I mean, this, this guy, this is captain America, right? And any movie he's in one, he looks great. He always looks great. He does a great smirk. And mm-hmm. this is a very different acting level for him than what captain America is in the Marvel movies. I mean, he's got an arrogance here. He's cussing. Uh, there's a there's almost a manipulation in how he's talking to Marta and what he's trying to set up. And then there has to be an overconfidence on his part. And uh, it is his right before the will reading where he's cussing at the family. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't say the word, but it he was supposed to say the F words, but then he ends up saying the the eat SH word. And so as he goes around the room and points and says it, it's such a great expression. You, you, it has zoomed right up on him, Yep. you know, and here's, you know, here's Captain America cussing everyone out. <laughs> it's such a great thing. And then when they go into the will reading and he gets, he's in the very back corner, he knows it's no surprise to him. And as soon as everybody gets hit with that, they're getting nothing, his smirk, they zoom in on his smirk and it is such a level of contentment that he throws forward. Yeah. So I think when you get that kind of thing, it's 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 definitely banking on a character that's a, a crowd favorite. Everybody loves him. And then to get him to do some of these facial expressions and these comments and to really get you to go, oh, man, this is great acting right here. Yeah, he's despicable. And, you know, this is his first high profile thing after Endgame. His first post cap, you know, real big thing after cap. And he is the like the anti Captain America in this. And he's so good at wanting us to hate him. Just fantastic. I, yeah, the smug grin is great. Uh, I did I did want to talk about, you know, actually, since we're talking about Ransom, let's talk about like this. Uh, his sweater is is one of the things that a lot of people will talk about. And uh, this isn't this isn't just exclusively me. So there, there was actually a great interview uh, in People magazine. Costume designer Jenny Egan talked about this, that she added holes and rips to his to his sweater because of the fact that he is he's privileged and doesn't care about his stuff so it's kind of like his little um he's showing disrespect to the family disrespect to his name and his clothes that he just he just doesn't care like that's just kind of who he is in this super nice sweater but he like that's just him like he just doesn't care until the very end when he loses it all yeah and then right before he tries to stab her and he says, "My, our family home, our family name, our family heritage, right. our family line. Yeah, you know, it's it's so the great trying, overcompensation. Yeah. You don't know what you have till it's gone. Yeah, he's trying to exactly. He's he's trying to present himself as that devil may care, and then actually he finds out he actually does care quite a bit about it. Uh, I did want to talk about." Um, there is one more diegetic song. There's Roxy Music's More Than This that's playing in one of the flashbacks and you have Joni dancing to it and then she tries to pull Linda out of the chair and who just completely refuses, which I thought was hilarious. Like she's trying to dance and I'm trying to pull Linda out of the chair and she just like waves her off, which again, just a just quick little moment of characterization, uh, which is fun. Uh, but the biggest thing I have to talk about with costumes is uh, Marta and just like her and her frumpy clothes and her her hair and everything and like it's Anna de Armas and she's nondescript she's just like this homebody that like no one pays attention to and it's it's Anna de Armas it's <laughs> which is kind of amazing like that she kind of just blends into the background here does such a great job i think she's she's a perfect cast for that she does such a great job of being timid and uh i just to her mannerisms her conversations and how she carries herself throughout this whole movie as this timid world is swirling around her. Yeah. 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 Like if you've seen, if, if you've only seen this, then like, Hey, you should at least like see, see Blade Runner 2049, like very different or even her in, in no time to die, which, you know, another thing with Daniel Craig, just to kind of see those, those two actors in two very different roles kind of paired up and the, the dynamics just remarkably different. So that's just a lot of fun. Uh, one last thing I want to talk about with costumes. 
uh, Linda, her black glasses and her white hair and her, she has all these pantsuits. Like she's just all business, which goes back to again, that, that thing with Joni, she isn't going to dance. She's just super serious and very strict. And you've seen her, you see, first time you really see her with Marta too, that they, the parallels there, like they're so very different, but, uh, you know, Harlan picks one of them, not the other, which is interesting. Uh, just looking at Marta, did you know that her and Daniel Craig reunited in James Bond after this movie? Yeah, that's what I was talking about earlier. No time to die. I didn't. I didn't. I, when you said that, I didn't make that connection yeah. that that was her. I know. And right? that, oh my goodness, what a yeah. great! I don't know. Next step of the. I love it when movies like this. You get this movie, and this is one of my favorite things that happens. Is you get this movie, and there's some chemistry here. And there's some connection and then you get them in another movie together and a completely different movie there, you know, yep. but it, it just, it just shows me, you know, just a level of, of what they do. And, and that, that sometimes that chemistry that you feel in a movie is real, that there's a real yeah. chemistry there of, of boy, they they would be great friends or they would be, you know, um, good coworkers or good colleagues or good lovers or, you know, something right. great that that chemistry fits. Yeah, she blends into the background here really, really, really well, and I, I think this might have been the first thing I saw her in, and then it was, oh yeah, I've seen her, and I've seen her in that, but I didn't remember her, which I guess, I mean, that's the point. Yeah, that she's supposed to not be memorable. Uh, let's talk about setting and design. Uh, I mentioned earlier a lot of this is just film is filmed on location around uh, around Boston, Massachusetts. Even the house is that's a that's a real house. Uh, which is fun. And it feels, it feels real. Again, that goes back to like the throwback thing. Like it's not on a soundstage. Like these are all filled and filmed in real places. Uh, the, let's see, the Ames mansion, for instance, in Borderland State Park is for many of the interior shots. It's, it's, shot, it's shot in a real house. So the geography like has to make sense. Uh, and it does. Wasn't um, the, the big, uh, didn't they film it with three houses? Yeah. So they got some other, for, for exteriors, they got some different places. And then the interiors, because yeah, you're gonna you're gonna need to. Do and that. the the house they picked, the inside, is really a real house that has been in a generational wealth family, and has not been updated. Has kept that that kind of that traditional look of old mansion. Yeah. Well, I I wonder how much of that the set decoration was was there originally because that is overwhelming. That's the one thing I had with like all the knickknacks and the lamps and the artwork. Like it's just everywhere. Like it's it's clearly opulent. It's clearly somebody who has a lot of wealth, but it's it's like uh, it's cloying. It's it <laughs> it's kind of claustrophobic in the way that everything is just everywhere and weird stuff, masks and dolls and statues. Yeah. So uh, the Harlan painting, did you notice that, that that was a green screen? It was not completed in time in the painting. And so they had a green screen in there. And then after they took some high res shots of it, after the movie was, they were done, the cameraman or editors went back and then put it into those shots with Harlan's painting on the wall. I did not know that. That's, that's great because it does kind of have an otherworldly quality to it. So like, that's be one of the times where like... <laughs> you know, the imperfection of digital photography actually would, would pay off. Yep. And the very beginning, you get a shot of it. And then at the very end, after the murder solved, Marta's looking at it, the smirk, he has a smirk after the, the, the painting had a smirk after the murder was solved. You're telling but me it's different. In the beginning, it was a different facial expression. Oh my goodness. Just one more reason to watch this movie again. Yep. See, it's oh. one of those, it's like we said, there's too many details for you to see. <laughs> you have to go back and watch it after reading a couple of the Easter eggs and the little things that behind the scenes. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I did not catch that. And it makes it more rich. See, listeners, this is why we did the heavy lifting looking for the cinematic aspects. So <laughs> you can just sit back do. and catch all the rest of that stuff. There you go. You're welcome. Uh, I mentioned the props, the, the coffee cup. That's huge because you get to see that at the end. Like it's in Tarlin's at the beginning and then it's Marta's at, at the end. And that it's kind of like the passing of the torch. It's officially her house as well, literally. And, you know, and I think that sets up a good thing is sometimes in the movies, you have to have it set up in the beginning so that you can return to it later. Like you can't just have a random thing. And this is part of the thing with the blood drop on her shoe. Like, did we see the blood drop on her shoe in the very beginning? She sees it pretty early on. Yeah. Oh, did she? Because I didn't a, catch her seeing it. And so then yeah. 
See, the second time, and I should have watched for it, but I forgot to look for that. But the, like, I didn't see the blood drop. But in the very beginning, you see that mug as it pans to her at her house. And then at the end, she's, one, she's on the balcony looking down on the thrombies now. And as she's holding that mug, Ryan Johnson in the moment made that call. Like that wasn't like he went to that mug. It wasn't, it wasn't like it was written in there. It was like, Hey, this would work. Let's do this. And so he had that mug and then she's holding it just to where it says my house and she's covering up the other parts, but it says my house. And we, we return back to the mug that was established early in the movie. And so it's a great way of setting something up in the beginning. And then you come back to it at the end. It's the punchline setup. Yeah. And so I think I think that's a great way. That mug was an absolute wonderful closing for that. I didn't realize that. That's that I would have assumed that was in there the whole time. But um, yeah, it's a great payoff for sure. Some other cool props uh, in this one. You have uh, Harlan's letter to Linda about about Richard cheating on her. It's got like the invisible ink, which is kind of a, that's a very cool prop and very much a you know murder mystery type of thing. You put in there Blanc's coin, which. Is, is interesting how he's kind of distracting people with that. Uh, yeah. Doing some, Marta has that, that magnet, that big old clunky magnet to try and erase the videotape, which is awesome to awesome too. Cause it's a videotape that they have <laughs> of her, of her trying to get it, uh, leave and then come back. Uh, and then of course, you know, they have the, uh, Oh, there's a couple of things. Um, I mentioned, I forgot this one. Marta has that cracked screen on her phone. Yes. The whole, which, yeah. Characterization all over that, right? It's like, that she can't even afford, you know, a, a decent phone, uh, which is yeah. which is fun. And then you have that, of course, that stage prop knife, which is massively important because she'd be dead otherwise. Well, and that's the other part. They set it up because I thought you you would think to yourself, wait, all of a sudden of this whole knife thing, one of them is a prop knife. But he Harlan himself mentions in the beginning when he's holding the actual knife he slits his throat with about. A, he's talking about a prop knife and then he sticks that one in the table because it's real. And so, you know, it sets up that there's going to be a prop knife at the end. And so that when you do get the prop knife, it's not just a throwaway comment that Harlan made. It's a, oh my gosh, that's the one <laughs> prop knife that looks real out of the whole thing. So real that Chris Evans grabs it off the, off the circle of knives. Yeah. Uh, anything else for, uh, setting and design before we move down to characters and see if we missed anything. No, except I think if any viewers watching it, I tell you it's, there's so many details. Don't get lost in just looking for them. They're, they're going to, you're going to see some, but it's like I said, it's one of those movies you have to go back and you'll rewatch it and you'll catch a few more details next time. But yeah. Uh, so characters, Daniel Craig doing the Southern accent is fantastic. It, I buy it. Like it, it's it's legitimately good. It's it's such a great accent, and he just he kind of play. He kind of sounds like an idiot. When, when what is that line? Chris Evans says like CSI KFC. <laughs> Chris Evans can be so <laughs> sarcastic, so mean. But and and I think I think those are there are the level of casting. First off, in this Jamie yeah. Lee Curtis, Don Johnson, Chris Evans. I mean. Every one of these characters is an incredible level of talent. Yeah. And then to bring them all in and get them so incredibly pulled together for this, you know, to have a little bit of venom against each other, uh, you know, and Michael Shannon, which, by the way, I'm going to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to highlight, okay, Daniel Craig, his accent, absolutely top notch. You know, Chris yeah. Evans, sarcasm, top notch. Let's talk about Michael Shannon. He's a favorite of mine anyway. I love him in Superman. I always love that movie. But like he is kind of this damaged character, but he does not kind of show a creepiness to him until he's in the hallway with her. Mm -hmm. And then you see a level of Michael Shannon that's just a little bit almost intimidating and threatening. And so like you said, like it's just this level of talent for all these characters and and for – you know, and then you go back to Daniel Craig's accent, like just how he pulls that off. Yeah, he uh, he uses a similar accent in, in Logan Lucky. I don't know if you've seen that, but that that's another one. We should look at that at some time. It's it's uh, Steven Soderbergh, the guy who made the Ocean's Eleven movies, and it's kind of like a redneck Ocean's Eleven. It's it's actually really really good. That's a quick little plug for that. Um, 
Christopher Plummer too, like underrated as Harlan Thrombey. It's not a big role, but it's a super important one. And he's just so, you know, you love this guy. Like you just, you feel bad for this guy that he has this family that's just money grubbing, you know, and he's, you know, he's a man of integrity. He's just like, he finds, you know, these injustices that people are doing and he just cuts them off. Like, nope. You know, you're, you're double dipping from me, Joni. I'm, I'm, I'm cutting you off. Like them's the breaks. That's how it works. Uh, Speaking of another talent, small part, Jordan Gordon Levitt. Joseph Gordon Levitt had a cameo in here. He gets a lot of cameos in some of uh, Ryan Johnson's movies, but he was in, uh, he was on the TV yelling when they go to Marta's apartment. And the very first line after she tells what, after we know what happened, you killed him is on the TV. (laughs) And and the girl's watching his her sister or whoever's watching the TV and says, You killed him. And so it's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> kind of just says right there. And then uh, but Jordan or Joseph Gordon Levitt was uh on there. He was one yeah. of the guys in that character for whatever fake show they had. Yeah, that was a great little moment too, where you're kind of bringing your in and like, is this what's actually happening? No, it just it reminds us of what's actually happening. Yeah. Uh you got Frank Oz in the movie too, uh, as as the lawyer. As, as Alan Stevens, who takes a lot of crap from, from the Trumpies. You're useless. You can go or whatever he says. That was a great line. There's small little lines like that that are just great. Just little little comments. Yeah. You're useless. Yeah. Okay, I can go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, and I always love M. Emmett Walsh. He, he's a tiny little party man. He's looking old in this. He's the security guard with the with the videotape. But he's just, he's just always fun. He, he kind of elevates everything that he's in. And he was uh, he was originally was going to be given to Ricky Jay, who was a friend of Ryan Johnson, but passed away right before before the movie. So Emmett Walsh is a great great part for that. Yeah. Uh, for for Hero's Journey, which would be the next thing we have down there, I just wrote nope because <laughs> it's it's not that type of story at all. It's really just like let's reveal like the badness of all these people, how <laughs> really how corrupt all of the thrombies are. Uh, which is is the ride? That's that's the fun of it. Yeah, it's not it's not a hero's journey, but it is a incredible uh, whodunit murder mystery Sherlock Holmes, which they drop a Sherlock Holmes reference in there. So it's just as a great. There's a part where uh, Daniel Craig says the game is afoot, a eh, Watson. So it you yeah. know just it acknowledges where they're at. Self aware, absolutely. Uh, under world building, I really just like, it feels like our world. It doesn't feel like there's anything in this that, that could not happen. I mean, it's, it's definitely an exaggeration of a lot of things, but it, it just feels it's self-contained, but it's also a little quirky, but not, not overly so. Yeah, no, I think, I think the world building is, it's, it's a great set for a, it's, the setting behind it and everything, the world building that they have for this secluded place and these, all these people, and then even bringing in some of the real political debates and things that they have that are current yeah. in our time. I mean, it does, it does set up a good world of this is existing right now. All right. So final thoughts, Corey, on Knives Out. Well, I think uh, this, this movie is an absolute top-notch movie. Ryan Johnson, who who has received his fair share of, of fan hatred for Star Wars, and th- you know, and so, so things like that. But then when he goes and makes a movie like this and you just look and you think, this is incredible. For him to have directed this, put all these characters together, built this great movie, this is a level of talent. He is an amazing director. This is an amazing movie. I think this is a movie that you have to watch. You have to, you have to realize you're going to be on detail overload. It's going to have some great twists, plot twists, turns, misleads, um, and I think and there's some great humor mixed in. There are some perfect lines delivered perfectly by these cast members. And I think if uh, you could summarize the whole movie, you could summarize it with the quote uh, Daniel Craig gives, where he says uh, he's talking to Marta at the end, and. He, she says, you're not much of a detective. And he says, well, to be fair, you're not much of a murderer. Perhaps we deserve each other. Yeah. And that's a great line to summarize the plot of the movie. 
For me, I wanted to say uh, that the first the first time I watched this, I kind of thought that that Marta's puking reaction to lying was kind of a cheat. Uh, but then they find that it actually they don't use it nearly as much as I thought they were going to. And so I think they use it actually the exact right amount. And you get that nice payoff at the end where she she lies about um, <laughs> about the housekeeper not being dead and then pukes on Chris Evans, oh. uh, which is fu- which is fun. Like it's just at the beginning, I think really just to kind of shorthand establish that like she's somebody we need to trust, uh, which is fine. But the, the highest compliment that I can give this film is that I need to watch it again. I want to watch it again. Yeah. You know, uh, it's pretty much universally loved and I want to see the sequel. I'm excited for that. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, it, you know, it, it was nominated for best original screenplay uh, and somehow didn't win, which is, which is really weird. Uh, some other just kind of random facts that the name, I don't know if you knew this, but the name is taken from a Radiohead song, uh, knives out. That has nothing to do with that. But my favorite thing is, and I think I've read this is that the name Harlan Thromby comes from a choose your own adventure book called who killed Harlow Thromby. I'm pretty sure I read that when I was a kid. Oh, I didn't know that. I remember those choose your own adventure books. I may have to go back and check that out. The one Easter egg that I got, I love that I drop the drop in there is Danica McKellar is name dropped in this movie for a Hallmark movie, Deadly by Surprise, which is not a real movie. Yeah. And she actually tweeted a fake cover of a book, Deadly by Surprise. <laughs> and so so I'm kind of hoping that there's somehow maybe she's in the sequel, like because I haven't seen oh, too much about the sequel. And so I'm kind of trying to stay away from it a little bit just because I want to I want to go into this sequel. And like you said, this is the highest compliment. You want to watch this movie again. But I think there's another compliment is if this movie, you watch this before you go see the sequel and you go into the sequel with this fresh viewing thinking of all the things now that I got to pay attention to, small, subtle things that they did in this movie, I'm going to look for in the next movie. So as we close, we just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Email us at readingbetweenreels at gmail.com or use the SpeakPipe app on our website. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend. This is our last show of the year. So we'd like to take a minute to thank all the great people who supported us in various ways this year. Just to name a few, Dan Zare, Cordy Club, Jeff McGee, Anthony King, Mary Purdue, Brian Young, Ian Desher, Aaron Harris, Thomas Riddle, Mike Pilot, Din from F105, Adam Bray, Dennis Keithley, Adam O'Brien, Colby Mead, Matt Rushing, David Jesse, Christopher J, Jonathan Marr, Greg McLaughlin, and David Motters. That's just to name a few. Uh, one last thing. Our la- next episode is going to be a relaunch of the show. It'll be in January, and it, it'll be a discussion of our top 10 movie sequels of all time. And to celebrate our next phase of the show, we are going to do our first giveaway. We're giving away uh, one digital copy of Avengers Age of Ultron. It's a sequel, people. Look for the pinned tweet on our Twitter profile and retweet and like the tweet to enter. Giveaway will end on one and the winner will be announced on the next episode of Reading Between the Reels. And if you'd like to contribute to that show, please send us an email or voicemail about your favorite movie sequels. We'll share it on the next episode.